Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so today we're going to kick off a new message series that's going to take us all the way up to the 4th of July. It's going to be a long one. Probably, I think it's our longest one to date here at our church. But the Lord told me last year as we're preparing for this year, he said, do three things. Study Matthew, study Isaiah, and take your time. So we're going to do that. So we've been in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 for Advent in the month of December. We're going to pick up where we left off in Matthew chapter 3. But just a little background on Matthew before we get into Matthew 3. Matthew was written by the disciple Matthew, the guy who followed Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Because he doesn't identify himself as that guy anywhere in this book. Well, church tradition going all the way back to the first century, it has always been uh, common knowledge that the guy who wrote this was Matthew to the point where when he wrote it, he started circulating and everybody's like, where'd you get that? Oh, Matthew gave it to me. All right, so the, the common understanding of who wrote this has always been Matthew, and that's, that's what we're taking. So Matthew, the disciple, the guy who followed Jesus is the guy who wrote this. He probably wrote it around the 60s AD. So that probably would have just been about 20 or 30 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. He wrote it specifically to a Greek-speaking Jewish audience. So the, he wrote it to Jews who spoke, who spoke Greek. And the reason why he did that is because these Greek-speaking Jews who had uh, decided to follow Jesus were under persecution by other Jews who rejected Jesus. And what Matthew wanted to do was he, he wrote the gospel, he wrote his experience with Jesus in such a way to communicate, hey, look, I know all of the haters are telling you that this guy is not who he says he is, but I'm gonna tell you my experience. I knew the guy, I walked with the guy, I talked with the guy, I listened to him speak, I watched him pray for people. And my understanding of all of the prophecies about what we were supposed to be looking for in the promise the Messiah, the coming king, he fulfilled all of it and more. So the book of Matthew is filled with prophecies, um, a lot of them from Isaiah, about the coming suffering servant who is going to redeem the people of God. And so Matthew writes this book to this audience, letting them know, hey, the thing we've all been taught and have been waiting for our entire lives, it's finally here and he's the guy. So that's his goal. Now, the question we should ask today is, why are we reading it? Well, the first reason why we're reading this book is because God told me for us to read this book. He spoke to me last year in prayer, God, where, where are we heading? What are we supposed to do? And I felt like the leading of the Holy Spirit was we're supposed to study Matthew. So that's the first one. The other one is that this book does a really, really good job of threading the needle between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I like that. I'm not going to lie. I like it. Because I think if there's anything that's lacking in the local church, it's a healthy understanding of the Old Testament. And for those of us who do have an understanding of it, most of our understanding is just a historical um, approach to it. We know this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. Some of us were like, I don't know, did Elijah or Moses come first? I can't, I can never remember where, what order. 
well, we're gonna fix that. Because everything that we learn in the New Testament about Jesus is a fulfillment of things that have been taking place for thousands of years. And for us to just assume that half of this book is not relevant to us is prideful. I don't want us to be like that. So I want us to have a healthy understanding of not just the historical approach of what happened where and to who, I want us to understand how that stuff was pointing to the goodness of Jesus and when he showed up, the fulfillment of who he was illuminated all of that stuff that took place in the past. So this book does a good job of threading that needle, but the last reason why I want us to read this book is because I want us to worship Jesus and treasure him above all else. And what better way than to read a book by a guy who walked with him that's about him. So there's no ultimatum, or there's no uh, you know, hidden agenda, there's no uh, you know, secret reason why we're studying this because like, the world's falling apart and now we gotta read Matthew. No, we're doing this because we love Jesus, we wanna fall in love with him even more, and this is a great book to do it, amen? So that's the reason why we're reading Matthew this year. So we left off in Matthew two with Advent. Um, let's pick it up in Matthew three. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter three. We're gonna read a little, then pause, kind of reflect on it, because um, Matthew kind of takes us through a couple different turns, and some of his thoughts are broken up with some things that happen, and I wanna make sure that we're reflecting on things. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll put the verses up here, up on the screen. <clears throat> Matthew chapter three, we're gonna start in verse one. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John, this guy, John the Baptist, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Yeah. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan and they were confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even right now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. See, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, he's mightier than me. His sandals, I'm not even worthy to carry. He's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and, and his winnowing fork in his, it's in his hand, and he's gonna clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he's gonna burn with unquenchable fire. Whew, was a heck of a dude, huh? He's giving it to him. Now before we dive into what he's talking about and what's happening here, 
Let's reflect on what we know about John the Baptist from Scripture, because this isn't the only place he's mentioned. In Luke 1, we know that he was the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest, Elizabeth was barren, they prayed desperately for a child, God gave them a child. Um, The references, it seems as though Elizabeth and Mary were related in some way, maybe cousins, which means John the Baptist and Jesus may have been cousins in some format. They may have just been related by tribe, but you know, probably related by cousins. So they probably grew up close to each other. They probably knew each other. But also in Matthew 11, later on as we get through the book, Jesus is gonna talk about John the Baptist and reference him as essentially coming in the spirit of Elijah. So there was prophecy in the Old Testament that before the Messiah or the King, the Savior would show up, Elijah was gonna come back and prepare the way of the Lord. That's what Matthew is telling us in verse three. What John the Baptist was doing, he wasn't Elijah, but he took on the anointing or the mantle, whatever Bible word you wanna use, to assume the responsibility of the same ministry as Elijah. Elijah, his whole deal was this time to get rid of sin and idol worship and call the nation to repentance. Well, John the Baptist is here and he's doing the same thing to prepare the way of the Lord. Essentially, the king is coming and none of the roads are ready for him to ride on. So it's time for us to start preparing the way of the Lord because he's gonna show up soon. And John had a reference for who this was. He knew who it was and he talked about it in a way that made these people understand, look, what you're coming to do, you're not just here for a show. You're not coming to just watch me speak and dunk people underwater and get yourself dunked so that you can kind of give yourself a pat on the back that you checked off another box and some religious exercise that you had to fulfill. No, what we're doing out here is an outward demonstration of the things that should be going on inside your heart. And that is turning from sin and to God. But the crazy thing about this is he's out in the wilderness telling a bunch of Jews to do this. Now, why was that crazy? Because baptism wasn't a common practice for Judaism. This is really one of the first places it shows up. Now, it was, according to old traditions, if you go back and we study extra biblical texts uh, after uh, the return from the exile, it was a common practice in Judaism for Gentiles to, who had decided to turn to Judaism. The first step was for them to come to uh, the temple and be baptized, be completely immersed in water as symbolic, in a a symbolic way, of the time where the children of Israel passed through the water, uh, the Red Sea. There's, to to become truly Jewish, there has to be this passing through of water. So if you're gonna be a Gentile, you gotta cleanse yourself and get all that nasty Gentile off of you. So you get baptized, you get dunked, and you come back up, you make some kind of sacrifice, and that's how you make your conversion into Judaism. So for John the Baptist to be standing out in the wilderness telling a bunch of Jews that they have to do the same thing the Gentiles have to do and then look the Pharisees in the face and say, don't think that because your descendant is Abraham that you're something special. What he's saying here, this message, is unbelievably polarizing. Now I'll come back to why it's polarizing in a minute and the idea of what he's actually saying to these people in repent But what I wanna highlight just for a moment is what he's actually doing. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he's living a very, very simple life. He's refusing luxury 
And he's refusing to even take on a title for himself. If you ask John, John, you know, who are you? What are you? His response would always be just, man, I'm just a voice. Just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm just trying to prepare the way of the Lord. I'm a nobody. I'm just a voice. I'm God's mouthpiece to these people. And what I'm saying is repent because you're running out of time. So he lives this humble life. He's only choosing to be a voice. He's preaching repentance. He's baptizing people. He's pointing people to Jesus. He's got no desire to build some personal ministry or legacy. The hallmarks of John's ministry sound a whole lot like what the church is supposed to be about, doesn't it? This is my argument. That John the Baptist is a type or a shadow of what the church is supposed to be about right now. I am convinced that the best place to preach to the lost is out in the wilderness. Out there where they are broken, not when their life is going great, when things are falling apart and they have nowhere to turn and they're looking for an answer. That is prime real estate for preaching the gospel out in the wilderness. Where are we sent? Out into the wilderness. What should we be wearing when we're out in the wilderness? Something similar to John. I'm not talking about eating locusts. Some of you are already into that, so I don't have to get you to do that. You're raising locusts in your backyard, making your own honey. But the point I'm trying to make is not the actual physical wear a camel's hair and a leather belt. What I'm saying is the humility that he walked in, the, the refusal of adopting the luxuries of this world and letting your heart be pulled away by them, that's what we are about. We as a church should not be spending most of our time finding ways to spend money on ourselves. John the Baptist made it clear by the way he chose to live what is most important when you're communicating to people in the wilderness about the gospel. And it is not to be so dressed up in your finest linen that they can't hear what you're saying because they can't get past what you look like. Are you following me? What I'm talking about is a humility. I'm not talking about the actual things you're wearing. I'm talking about the spiritual posture that you carry yourself with. I'm talking with the pride that we walk in, in the things that we say that we have, and the comforts that we hold on to. John lived a pretty radical life because he didn't want anything distracting from the message. He didn't want people showing up and saying, oh man, John, that's a pretty nice outfit. It's not about my outfit. It's about what I'm saying and what I'm calling you to and it's about the dunking underwater and it's about the call to repentance. I believe that the message of repentance has not changed. It's still what the church is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about calling people to turn from this world and to God. And I believe that our only mission is to point people to Jesus and not build some version of a small business in America that is successful and employs lots of people to fuel the economy. That's not why we're here. 
the reason why we're here is the same reason why this message was polarizing in John's time. John was telling all of these people, everybody needs repentance, even you. And it's funny because this, I, I, I did um, some research on how often does this idea of repentance come up in the book of Acts when the early church is being um, uh, planted. Now follow me here, you probably won't be able to write all these downs, but I'm recording it so you can go back and listen to it later. Um, when Peter and John uh, and Paul, and they're preaching in the book of Acts and they're talking about the kingdom of God and people are saying like, what do I have to do to get saved? This is their response, you gotta repent. And this is said in Acts 2.38, 3.19, 5.31, 8.22, 11.18, Acts 17.30, Acts 20.21, Acts 26.20. So it's not a one-off. This is not just a John the Baptist thing. This is an early church, everybody was on board, that the thing you're about is repenting. Now what are we repenting from? Well, yes, we're repenting from our sins. We're turning from ourselves. We're turning from this world to God. But there was a common understanding in the early church. Essentially, there's been a common understanding all the way up until just about 50 years ago about what, what, are the main, what is the main root of sin? What is the big thing that's causing all the other things in the world? I've been reading this book by this guy named Tim Keller, and it's, it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgiveness. I'm going to have our uh, pastoral candidates read through this as well. But he makes the case that um, all throughout the history of the world, just up until just about 50, 60 years ago, everyone, all, almost every society collectively agreed that the, 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 the the main root of all things that are going wrong in the world is pride. People thinking too highly of themselves. Why does a husband beat his wife? At the root, it's because he has a higher view of himself than his wife. You follow? What is the root of sin? We go back to the garden. What, what, did, what, did, what did Satan get kicked out of heaven for? Having too high a view of himself. Now, you go back about 50, 60 years, we've had some kind of revolution in America and across the world, and the idea is that the thing, the main root, What's causing all the ill and the, the, the garbage in the world is not people thinking too highly of themselves. The issue is people are not thinking high enough of themselves. We need people to start thinking more of themselves. Well, here's the problem. And this is, this is where most secular counseling starts. You go in and you sit down and you talk to a secular counselor, like it's all about, you. well, you need more self-esteem. We've got to pump you up. We've got, we've got to think more of yourself. Here's the problem. If we've got 50, 60 years of telling people that the problem is you need more of you, when as, as a society, as the world, as history, as the Bible communicates that the problem is not more, you've got too much, then what we're telling people in the world that we're evangelizing is that what you need to fix the problem is get more of the problem. We're telling people that in order to fix the problem in the world is actually to up your dose of the thing that's causing the problem in the world. There's no end in sight. 
if all we're communicating is you need more of you. Now in this book, he kind of takes this, this, this detour on how do, we, how do we solve this in society but, but also within the concept of the church. Our, our normal gut reaction would be, okay, well if the problem is I'm thinking too high of myself, then what I need to start doing is I need to start thinking less of myself. I'm not as good as I think I am, so I've got to start, I've got to start keeping myself in check. That's not the answer either. Bringing yourself down a notch doesn't help. Why? Because you're still fixed on you. We're still talking about you, whether it's too high or too low or we gotta increase or lower. Guess what, we're still talking about you. The only way to fix this is what Jesus taught us to do. It's what John is telling these guys to do. You don't think less of yourself or more of yourself. You think of yourself less. This is what Jesus is saying when he calls his people to serve others. He's saying, look, you're transformed not by standing around and saying, well, I've gotta do that, I gotta knock this down, no. Stop standing around and thinking about yourself at all. Quit thinking about yourself. Fix your eyes off of yourself, look at others and serve them. And guess what's gonna happen as you obey Christ in serving like he was a servant? Your eyes are gonna stop being fixed on you. You're gonna think of yourself less and that transformation is gonna start taking place. And that's how the light inside of us starts shining bright in the world. The biblical model for this is servanthood. That's what this is. I'm gonna think of myself less, I'm gonna think of my neighbor more, I'm gonna love my neighbor as myself. Not much I love myself, I'm gonna love my neighbor that way. Fix your eyes off of you and onto him. So what, what John the Baptist is doing is all these people are coming to him and they have very high views of themselves because we are descendants of Abraham. And, and John is standing there and he's crying out, you need to repent. And repent means turning from that high view of yourself. Stop looking at yourself. Turn your back on all of that garbage and fix your eyes on God and the son that he's sending, the one who, look, I'm out here baptizing you with, with water for repentance, but buddy, when he gets a hold of you, when you really get this in your heart and you stop thinking about yourself all the time and you fix your eyes on him and you let him change you, you're gonna be baptized with fire. It's gonna be like shot up in your bones and it's gonna be something that just, it, it, it just it's like, you see how like fire just kind of consumes everything and it does it really fast? This is the imagery he's talking about. He's gonna get down on the inside of you it's gonna consume every bit of who you are. And guess who's gonna be in control? Not you, because you're not even thinking about yourself. You see the beauty of it? And you see this everywhere, you see this in worship. Why do we gather together and why do we sing? Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus and why we sing? Because it's a, it's, it's a, uh, it's a demonstration, it's an outward practice of saying, it's not about me. I'm singing and I don't care if the song is about me or if, it, if it's a song that I like or if it's, if it's my personal taste because guess what, it's not about me, it's about him, I'm singing to him. And in that act of singing to him, look what he's doing through that process. He's changing you because you're making a habit of thinking of yourself less. You follow?
And it's beautiful the way he does this. Because he's doing this by you. his, His model is, let me get you to stop thinking about you. Let me get you to stop trying so hard. Let me get you to stop grabbing hold of the steering wheel. I just want you to do one thing. I want you to stop thinking of yourself. I want you to fix your eyes on me and then just watch what happens while you're not looking. I mean, that's a pretty good deal, right? But for some of us, like, no, 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 no. No, that's too easy. There's gotta be something I can do. There's gotta be something. There's gotta be something that I do, right? I gotta get up. That's the problem. That's why you're not making progress because you're convinced because you have such a high view of yourself that you are on par with God's sovereignty and you can give him a helping hand. You follow? This is what John's calling you to. Stop thinking like that. Turn, repent. That is the wrong way to think. Now go to verse 13. So Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John. To be baptized by him, that was a funny way of reading that. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So you see what's happening? John's like, "Uh, buddy, I need you to baptize me. I know who you are. And Jesus responds, he says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now I'm convinced that when Matthew was writing this, he is hearkening back to a prophecy in Ezekiel one through two, but it's almost two chapters of a prophecy, so we probably didn't have time to reference it, but there is so many connections and symbolisms here that I I can't imagine that he, he didn't have this in his mind while this moment is happening. So what happens is Jesus goes down to the river. He wants to be uh, John to baptize him. John's like, I oh, know we need to reverse this. And Jesus says, no, to fulfill all righteousness. Essentially what he's saying is, this is I, I don't need to repent of anything, but I want all of my followers to follow in my footsteps and I'm gonna set an example for them. I'm not gonna ask my people to do something that I wouldn't first do. And so while I may not need it, I'm going to fulfill this because it fulfills prophecy and it also is the standard I want my people to follow. But in Ezekiel one through two, there's a prophecy of Ezekiel standing before, he's, he's on uh, the bank of a river and he's, he's caught up, the heavens rip open uh, and, he, and we're told in Ezekiel one and two that the spirit of God came upon him. Sounds familiar? He's at the corner of a river, the heavens open, the spirit of God comes upon him and the prophecy in Ezekiel is that God starts speaking to Ezekiel and calling him the son of man. That's the title that Jesus uses often. And God is telling Ezekiel, son of man, I want you to go and I want you to preach to my people. I want you to tell them to repent. I want you to turn from their ways. I want you to be my mouthpiece. 
And we talked uh, in the Advent series about how prophecy is foretelling and forthtelling. There's, there's this absolutely fulfillment of it right now and Ezekiel is happening, uh, is, is having this vision. God is using Ezekiel um, as a mouthpiece to go at that very period of time, probably around 596 BC, to go to, to Judah and, and tell them, like, you gotta repent, because if you don't, Babylon's knocking at the door. You need to turn, you've gotta repent. Time is almost out, do it now. That is absolutely there, but what God was doing in Ezekiel is he's setting his people up to understand that this thing that is happening on a small scale is going to be fulfilled on a large scale when eventually it's not just Ezekiel preaching to Israel, it's going to be the Son of God, the heavens open, being anointed by the Spirit to go out and preach not just to Israel, but to the entire world. Hey, it's time to repent from your way of doing things and come home to God. That's the beauty of what he's doing here. He's mirroring these two and he's showing us that these things are connected. And the reason why he's doing this is because he's reminding the Jewish believers at the time that this is who he was supposed to be. This is the guy we've been waiting for. Son of man, Ezekiel. No, no, this is the, the, the son of man. This is the real deal. This is the dude. He's experiencing, like Ezekiel experienced kind of just like a vision. Jesus is experiencing the real deal like heavens are actually opening, everyone's hearing the voice of God speak, yeah, this is my son. So this is helpful for the first century church, but it's also helpful for us because the Holy Spirit is making connections for us as well to do the same thing. You can trust, you can trust, you can trust. If Jesus fulfilled all this stuff, if God had all these plans set up and nothing fell through the cracks, then work that backwards into where you are now. Do you honestly think that because of your little situation, because of something that you did, that you're gonna throw his plan off the rails? Not possible. You're thinking too highly of yourself. Repent. So let's go to verse one in chapter four. So at this point, Jesus, after the baptism, he's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Man, I bet. I mean, six hours, and I'm already hungry. Three, and I'm hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is he quoting there? He's quoting Psalm 91. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you serve. It's quoted in Deuteronomy 6.13. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now this section of scripture is very interesting. It's interesting for a couple different reasons, because I think there's two big takeaways, at least for us today. There's probably more, but for us. 
Jesus suffered temptation, which means that you are not exempt from temptation either. Now that's not news. You're well acquainted with temptation. You know it's a thing that happens on a regular basis. So what we need to talk about is not the fact that you will in fact face temptation because we all know that we will. It is how you overcome temptation. We follow the pattern of Jesus. He overcame temptation by using scripture, which means if you're gonna overcome temptation, you're gonna have to learn some scripture. And if you're gonna learn some scripture, that means you're gonna have to open your Bible more than just on Sunday mornings. You're gonna have to crack this thing open and make a habit of reading this thing daily so that it gets on the inside of you and the Holy Spirit calls to memory the things that you need when you need them. But if you don't do the work before the temptation shows up, you're gonna fail every single time. And if you think that you have a better plan on how to beat temptation than the Son of God, I can't help you. You're too far gone. There's no plan that you can come up with that's gonna be better than what Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan himself. So let's go ahead and assume that this is best practices. Let's put this into practice. Let's overcome with this. Not something that you came up with, that some, some counselor told you or that you learned in some recovery group. Let's, let's put all of those nice things over here and let's look at what Jesus did and let's model after him. He used scripture to overcome temptation. That means you gotta know it. But here's the other thing about scripture. Overcoming temptation requires that you don't just know scripture, but you also know how scripture is misused. Because what is happening here is in the temptation of Christ, Satan is trying to bargain with God. Satan has come to Jesus and says, look, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to be hung on a cross. You don't have to raise from the dead. You don't have to go through the whole process of, of being mocked and ridiculed. All you have to do is strike a deal with me. I own all this stuff already. This is mine and I can give it to whoever I want. So let's strike a deal. Let's cut out all of the pain and let's get you what you want without you having to put in the work. Does that temptation sound familiar? That is the heart of every temptation that has been spoken to every Christian that's walked the earth since Jesus rose from the dead. Look, Satan's end goal is not for you to go uh, to a satanic house of worship and wear black makeup and start singing songs to the devil. That's not his end game. His end game is for you to compromise on obedience to what God told you to do. That's what he wants. He wants to strike a deal with you so that you're, you're obeying partially some of the things that God said, but you're also holding on to a part of yourself. You're also obeying some of what he says. You're also refusing to let go some of that old sin or old nature. That's what he wants. He wants to make a deal. And that is incredibly tempting because in the process of trying to cut a deal, what he uses is scripture out of context. 
This happens a lot on Sunday mornings. This happens a lot in podcasts that we listen to. This happens a lot in music that we sing. And unless you're sharp enough to know what it says and why it says it and how you apply it, you'll fall for the wrong interpretation every single time. So that puts a tremendous weight on us to actually do the work of reading and studying and pulling apart and learning so that we can walk in obedience in the correct, proper way. Because Satan loves coming and quoting scripture that makes what your wrong idea is sound perfect. You'll get a wrong idea, you're the best salesman to it, you start selling yourself on this terrible idea, and then you start going through the word and you're like, oh well, I mean it does say it right here. (laughs) So that's one for me. And then you read a little bit more. there's this, there's this thing, I remember when I got my first car in high school, I got a Ford Bronco, it was awesome, loved it. 1990 Ford Bronco, it was gray, white, it was awesome. Enough about my truck. But until I got that truck, I never realized how many people own Broncos. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You're oblivious to things that are happening around you until you get the thing in your brain and then, man, you just can't see, you see them everywhere. I remember this with Ford Explorers. A friend of mine got a Ford Explorer, and it was just like, oh, that's a really cool car. And it's just like, God, does everybody drive a Ford Explorer? It was like between the years of like 1998 and like 2011, that's the only car anybody ever drove. My point is, is that when you get an idea in your head, whether it's right or it's wrong, you will start proof texting that idea all through the word of God. You will become your own best salesman, and pretty soon, this thing that is wrong will seem so right to you because you've convinced it, and you've used scripture to back up your wrong thinking. So how do you safeguard against that? Well, luckily, we have the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us but he can't lead you and guide you unless you're doing the absolute obedience work of actually getting in here and reading it. Guess what the Holy Spirit can't do? Call to memory scripture you've never read. So the requirement we have on us is to walk in obedience, to love this, to cherish this, to see this, his word, what he spoke to his people. Treat it like a treasure. Because if you're not careful, it will be used against you. So when you're combating temptation, you have to know scripture for the purposes of identifying it being used wrongly, but also so that it can be a weapon in your hand to overcome temptation. Now let's go to verse 12. It says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, oh man, Isaiah again, it's a good thing we're gonna read that book next. It might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death. On them, a light has dawned. And from that time, from the time that John the Baptist was arrested, from that time, when he goes into the land of Galilee, Jesus began to preach. And what did he say? Let's all read it together. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's interesting. John gets arrested and Jesus immediately replaces him with the exact same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See how his messages are not changing? It's always been the same message. 
If there's any other message being preached, it's a false gospel. It's the wrong message because there's only ever been one message. Turn from sin to God. Now the side note here that I think is important as we move forward is that Matthew, through the rest of this book, will quote Jesus as him saying the kingdom of heaven. Now in Luke and Mark, you'll hear him reference the kingdom of God. Those aren't two different things, it's the same thing. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience and it was common practice in Jewish writing to as much as you possibly can avoid writing the name or the word God. And the reason why is out of respect. We don't say it, we don't write it because it's that holy. So when Matthew was talking about what Jesus is talking about, he uses the kingdom of heaven, but it's not a place, it's not a thing you're going to. He's referencing the kingdom of heaven as the kingdom of God, it's the same thing. It's essentially the same um, way of saying um, God's kingdom, which is his culture, um, his way of life, uh, the way of salvation, the norms, the laws, everything that comes with the way God does things, it's all here right now and the borders are wide open for anyone who wants to accept Jesus by first repenting. That's what he's saying. Now, as we continue through Matthew, what's gonna be interesting is you see how these folks respond to this message. When Jesus shows up and preaches the kingdom of heaven, because what the people at the time, religious leaders and even some of his followers wanted was a Messiah that would overthrow Rome. They wanted war. They wanted a fight. They wanted to stop being ruled by other nations and they wanted their autonomy like they had back in the times of King David and they were convinced that when this new king showed up, he'd be a king like David, he's gonna lead the people into a charge. And so what happens when Jesus shows up um, in the very next chapter when he starts talking about, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. What happens when the king, who everybody wants to be a warrior and one who starts taking taking Rome to task and getting the nation back, starts talking about things like peace and meekness? and being pure in heart? What happens when Jesus starts teaching about light when all of Israel wants darkness? What happens when Jesus, the coming king, shows up and starts talking um, uh, about um, repenting from sin and overcoming the, the, uh, the oppressor of sin rather than the oppressor of Rome? What happens when he shows up and he starts talking about peace rather than war? Well, eventually, the people who want something different than what Jesus wants, they get exactly what they ask for. And this is really important for us today. Because the the message of Jesus hasn't changed. What has changed is what we've taken from it and what we've left that we don't like. And so we take that and we kind of mold it into our own personal kind of like gospel and we walk around saying this, this is it, this is what it's all about right here. And so some of it looks a little loving, but some of it's got a a little edge to it. It's a little little harsh. Now, I'm, I'm all for speaking truth, and sometimes that stings, but I'm not for just saying things that are harsh just for the sake of saying things that are harsh. And we've got a habit of, 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 of saying, you know, what we should be about is, man, we should be about really sticking it to them rather than finding ways to love and serve our neighbor. And so what happens to the people who say, I want Jesus, but not the way he came. I I want this stuff, but I don't want this stuff. 
we end up getting exactly what we wanted. You know what happened to Israel in 70 AD after Jesus rose from the dead about 30 years later when Israel refused to accept Jesus and walk in peace and, and follow what he's saying and make the kingdom of God of what Jesus said? Guess what happened to Israel? Rome eventually had enough. They conquered them. They burned Israel, Jerusalem to the ground. They destroyed the temple and Israel, the people, they weren't allowed to return to their homeland until 1948. That's what happens when you want so badly something that Jesus doesn't want anything to do with. In his patience, he will work on you and change your heart if you submit. But if you dig your heels in and you refuse to change and say, no, I want it my way, guess what happens? He gives it to you. And it's never as pretty as you think. It's always worse than you think. So make a practice of getting in here and asking him to say, change my heart because I want what you want. Because if I keep wanting what I want instead of what you want, you're eventually going to give it to me and I'm going to end up coming back to you anyway and saying, can you take this thing from me? So how about we cut out those 20 years in between where I was rebellious and I just go ahead and say, you can have it all now. That's what the message is. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So what happens when you make the decision to, like, not like Israel, you, you're instead of refusing to accept the, the word and the following of Jesus. What happens when you follow it? And this is where we're gonna close today. We're gonna read the rest of Matthew 4. So this is, so Jesus sees repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He starts walking, verse, verse 18, chapter four. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who we all know is Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting a net into the sea for they were fishers of men. And he said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Oh, excuse me, they were fishermen. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. And immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. And what happened after these four guys dropped everything, forsook, forsook their entire world. What happened? Well, they went out throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming in the gospel of the kingdom. What happened? They're healing every disease, and every affliction among the people. And the fame of Jesus spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them too. Great crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. As we finish this chapter, this is the picture I wanna leave you with. Four guys who left everything to follow Jesus. That's the last picture I want in your mind. Because the options are simple. You either say, I can have Jesus and all this church stuff, and I don't need to give up anything. I can have both. 
Or you can say, I'm gonna forsake everything because there's only one thing worth my affection and that's Jesus. Now when you choose this and you say, I can do both, you're never gonna do either one very well. You're gonna with one hand hold on to the world and constantly have your heart pulled by the affections of this world. And you're gonna show up on church and you're gonna be pulled by the Holy Spirit when you show up on Sunday morning, but then you're gonna go back to work and you're gonna have the affections of the world pull on you some more. And then Sunday morning, the next week, you're gonna come back and you're gonna, and you're gonna spend the rest of your life like, like a boat being tossed in the sea, never really ever growing. You're gonna be an inch deep. Nothing's ever really gonna change for you. And in 30 years, you're gonna be doing the same thing. You're gonna be sitting going, I just don't know why things aren't changing. I'm telling you today, that's why things aren't changing because you haven't forsaken anything. But the other option is when you make a decision to say nothing in this world has value, I'm forsaking it all because there's only one thing that truly can captivate my heart. I'm gonna forsake this stuff. I'm gonna follow him. What are we promised? We're promised that we're gonna see him work through us healing diseases, afflictions, the fame of his name being spread to the earth, and we're gonna be used by that. We're gonna see oppressed people turn back to Jesus. Epileptics, paralytics, we're gonna see healings, we're gonna see crowds all crying out to Jesus. You're not going to see the moving power of the Holy Spirit working in your life if you're spending most of your life being tossed by the affections of this world. I'm telling you, there really is only one choice worth making and that is give it all up. So as we kick off this message series and this year, as we leave today, the last thing I want on your mind is this picture of these four small business owners who had to feed their families. They got an offer from Jesus to forsake everything and they took it and their lives were never the same. Did these four guys know that just in about three, four, five years from now, most of them would be hung on a cross? Most of them would be murdered. These fishermen, nobody knew who they were. Did they know that they would, be, they, would, they would be considered saints in some areas, that churches would be named after them? No, they had no clue. All they knew was there is something infinitely more valuable than just fishing. And this business that I've built for myself, and I wanna trade it all in for him. And I'm telling you, the payoff when you forsake, when you repent, when you let go, I can't even tell you what it is because it's so much greater than anything you've experienced. If I even told you, you wouldn't believe me. The only way to experience is to try it. So today, give it a whirl. When you leave here today, make a decision to walk away from things that have captured your heart for years. Because the trade-off in eternity, man, there's no comparison. Amen? Let's pray together. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.